When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to continue We Love Rock Docs with a look at the hard-to-find documentary MC5, A True Testimonial, an almost unbelievable collision of garage rock, hard rock, free jazz, hippies, radical politics, police, and FBI crackdowns. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by Justin Bankston for another edition of We Love Rock Docs. Justin, welcome. Thank you. Motor City fucking five. <laughs> That's right. And this is going to be an explicit one because we're talking about the MC5 and the documentary The True Testimonial. It came out in 2002 briefly and hasn't been seen since. It was supposed to come out in DVD in 2004. Never did. We'll talk about some of the whys, not going to get too much into that, but the MC5, I mean, you want to give us a quick summation of why the MC5 matters? Well, I think they they matter because they're such a great fucking rock and roll band, and I think that's one of the things I love about this movie, is it doesn't, it avoids that rock and roll documentary thing I hate, where they spend all this time contextualizing why the band matters, instead of showing you how the band mattered to their people and to their scene, right? And so you don't get, again, similar to what we talked about last time, you don't get talking heads that weren't involved to say, oh, the MC5 were so important. It, and it doesn't talk about them influencing punk music or you know, being the first punk rock band or anything like that. It just shows you what a great band they are. And to me, when I listen to the MC5, I get stoked. No doubt. And when you see the MC5, that was the real revelation of this movie for me, was I had never seen live footage of them before I saw this film. And they were incredible, incredible live. Wayne Kramer's stage moves, uh, Wayne Kramer and Sonic Smith, Rob Tyner uh, was incredibly dynamic frontman. I mean, these guys just blew the doors off. You, I used to wonder 
when I would read about the Stooges being the little brother band, I was like, how could that be? You know, how could anybody be bigger than the Stooges? And it's like obvious these guys were bigger than the Stooges. They just blew all the doors off everything and absolutely ruled Detroit um, from 68 to, well, 69. (laughs) (laughs) Late 69, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, they flew high and fell hard. They probably ruled Detroit more realistically from like 66, late 66 through 67, 68. Yeah, as soon as those Grandy Ballroom shows, that's that's when they start being the kings. Uh, and we'll get into that, like there's that point in the movie. But yeah, they were they were the kings of Detroit for a while before anybody took notice anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And then once... The Grandi Ballroom became part of the incipient ballroom circuit, which started in San Francisco, quickly had more of them in New York, Boston, Cleveland, Austin, uh, had sort of a ballroom scene, and Detroit, one of the biggest ballroom scenes in the country at that point, and bands like Cream and Big Brother and The Holding Company and The Grateful Dead all passed through, and many, many of them got blown off the stage by the MC5, just um, you absolutely had to be at your strongest metal to hang with them on their home turf. Just a ferocious, ferocious rock band. Indeed. And that's one of my favorite parts. Again, we'll come to it at its part in the movie, but when they get to talk about their attitude towards the big stars that were coming through that they were opening for. Yes, yes, yes. I believe they were uh, labeled insolent and uh, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> and and the, uh, movie, the movie starts with this really evocative scene of the ruins of the Grandi Ballroom. And I've been a big fan of a number of websites. Detroit, yes, was one of my favorites. I don't know if that's still around. But there's a number of people who've documented the ruins of Detroit. And Detroit went from being one of the great cities of America from, you know, 1900 through 1960 into a ruin uh and you know the grande ballroom was was no exception to that and even in the 60s it was a old old theater from the 30s that had as rob tyner says in the movie lots of ghosts and and hauntings and it's really haunted now i don't even know if it's still standing but in 2002 or whenever they filmed it it was and it was it was very evocative and then they immediately show live footage of the mc5 and just totally hooked me in i mean I was not prepared for how excited I got when I saw them live. Their charisma just leaps off the screen. Yeah, I had that same exact moment. And I saw this movie at the theater back in back in 02 or 03. Uh, the Alamo Drafthouse has screened this movie a couple times back then uh, before it was in wide release because that's kind of what the Alamo used to do anyway. It's like they'd get their hands on something and be like, we need to show this. Uh and so I'm sitting in the theater, and I, I know I love the MC5, but as you say, they come out, and you just, it's like this explosion, and you see Wayne Kramer doing this Chuck Berry duck walk across the stage, and it's just sensational. On one foot. He's yeah. on one foot. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing, amazing stuff. But let's, let's get into the, into the movie and, and sort of the meaning of the MC5. I mean, and right from the get-go, I always thought it was the Motor City 5, but Wayne Kramer tells the filmmakers that it, it was just MC5. It was supposed to be like a part name. Yeah, And they exactly. later thought of the, MC, the Motor City 5 and all kinds of other things, uh, 
you know that some some really obscene obscene ones. Morally corrupt five was one of the gentler ones, but when waste no time and and putting it in a social context, which was this was Detroit. Everybody's parents worked in the automobile factories. That meant it was fairly prosperous, but it also meant every kid was basically looking at the automobile factories as their life. And these guys wanted to get out, and rock and roll was their means of escape. And he also makes this connection between his GTO muscle car and his guitars and how much, how similar they were in terms of power and freedom. And you know, it's it's hard to argue that in the 60s, you could still believe in that kind of stuff in both senses. And I, I don't know that anybody has either of those beliefs now, especially not to that degree. But these guys were definitely um, in the zeitgeist with their music and, you know, their social context of, of the the cars and the whole automobile thing. And, and then it gets into to Wayne driving around and, and pointing out Fred Smith's house where they grew up together and spent a summer playing guitar. And then they have the montage of Fred and, you know, you really get that picture of them as these young greaser hoodlum types. These were not, um, this is not the birds. <laughs> these are not college bound, nice boys. These, these are tough guys. Exactly. Yeah, these this is not Pink Floyd in art school. No, this isn't Cambridge. <laughs> this is not uh, Sid Barrett in the meadows of Cambridge, um, England here. This is you know Lincoln Park, suburb of Detroit. And then they tell the story of this pivotal meeting that Wayne and Fred had with Rob Tyner, who was a friend of theirs from high school. And Wayne wanted to start a band, and he, you know, these were the two smartest, most talented guys I knew. And Fred's outlining his vision for the band of we want to be powerful and arrogant. And then, you know, knocks over a salt shaker or something and says, yeah, we're just going to knock stuff over. And Rob Tyner's like, that's not powerful and arrogant. That's just stupid. And they have to take it outside. Fred wins because Tyner slips in the snow. But then Fred can't beat him because Tyner refuses to be beaten, even though he's getting his face smashed in. And that absolutely blew their minds. And, and the discussions they had afterward, that's what sealed the bond between those three guys. Yeah, I, I thought that scene was really interesting. And I think it speaks to one of the core sort of like things that makes the MC5 different and sort of special and hard to figure out and hard to pin down is that like when you're talking about cars and freedom and rock and roll, it's it's a little bit, honestly, by 1966, it's already at that point a little bit of a retrograde thing that they're doing. They're like, you know, they're like the outsiders or whatever. Like, we're going to, you know, fix up our car and, and roar away and we're going to, like, be these tough guys and we're going to play rock and roll fucking music. And their rock and roll was really not the current rock and roll right they had been evolving so quickly they were taking their cues from chuck berry and so they're like they're kind of these these sort of uh these cavemen of their moment right but they also understand like there's whole thing is happening around them with the hippies and everything else and they understand well beating on each other isn't going to work and we got, you know, we have to do something to move forward. And so, like, it's this sort of friction that I think stays with them the whole time. Absolutely. And let's hear a little bit of MC5. This is from 1966, their first single independently released 
<clears throat> a version of I Can Only Give You Everything. I can only give you everything, an early single by the MC5, long before they signed their deal with Elektra. And that kind of puts the light to your your argument that they were a little reactionary. That was very much state-of-the-art, 66 Garage Rock, covering a song that was done by one of the British bands. I want to say them, but I could be wrong on that. I should have looked that up beforehand. But, yeah, I mean, they... um, And I think that the fight... I think they probably started in 64, 65, because they have a couple years on the Detroit VFW Hall circuit, the high school gymnasium circuit. And this was back when, this is pre-disco, disco in the sense of clubs that played records. Basically, if kids wanted to dance, they had they needed a rock band. And there was a big market for even amateurs like these guys were in the beginning. And so it's immediately playing this pretty packed um, circuit of, of, of teen dances. And... There's a constant battle of the bands dynamic, and I think that you know Wayne Kramer says that that's where they learned to be so combative because they were always playing these gigs with dozens of bands, and and there's a ton of bands that are going to come out of Detroit. Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels are ahead of them, um, but you've got Bob Seger, the Bob Seger system, just a step behind. You've got the Amboy Dukes with Ted Nugent. You know the Stooges are in Ann Arbor. And don't come along until much later, but there's a ton of talent in the area and they clawed their way to the top of this pretty brutal pack. Yeah, absolutely. Just through, I think, sheer wanting to be better than everybody else. And they probably just practiced more than everybody else. It, it's highly likely. And they were definitely unified and uh, and talented. I mean, Kramer and Fred and, and Rob Tyner were all very talented dudes and and you know carried a major rock band through and then over time they assembled uh the full mc5 as we know them when they picked up dennis thompson on drums and michael davis on bass but there's a great quote um there's two quotes from rob tyner in his early interviews and rob tyner died in 1991 so there's basically like one video interview the filmmakers had access to with him they also had his widow um who who spoke quite a bit but one of his interviews, he says, if I hadn't found rock and roll, I don't know, armed robbery was a possibility. <laughs> Assault and battery, definitely. So, you know, that's very much in the John Lennon school of if 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 it wasn't for rock and roll, these guys um, would have been very much on the fringes. But there was another quote that I thought was really wise and beautiful from Rob Tyner. And he said, we believed in our innocence that our horizons were limitless, but we live on a planet. It's a ball. The horizon appears to be limitless, but if you take it as far as you can go, you wind up in the same spot again because it's all a circle. Wow. Which is exactly what happened to that. Yeah, indeed. We believed in our innocence. <laughs> yes, yes, they did. And they and they took it just as far as you can take innocence um, to go. No doubt about that. And, and there's another quote Wayne Kramer has when he's talking about 
the early days of playing in these ballrooms and high school gyms and stuff, he says, we played a thousand of these gigs. It was all new. It was all exciting. It wasn't about record sales or being on the radio. It had nothing to do with any of that yet. It was about playing music for the people. Kids would dance their asses off. There would always be a fight in the parking lot and some drama, but that's what it was. It was playing music for the people. And they were kind of the last generation of bands that got that opportunity to play for dances. Um, you know, just in the 70s, there's no longer that grassroots audience for young bands. You, you had to be a name band and and club bands could basically only be cover acts because they were competing with discos and technology had sort of advanced on. So the 60s are like this last opportunity and the MC5 absolutely sees it. But then the next big move is the Grandi Ballroom and that takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because they're, they... The Grandi Ballroom situation, they're explicitly saying, calling it a San Francisco-style dance party. And so they're, 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 they're trying to import the hippie thing directly to Detroit uh, as explicitly as they can. And the band that they find to sort of head this up is the MC5, who are just like musically on a different kind of plane than what was going on on the West Coast. Absolutely. But the the thing about that era was, you know, the San Francisco bands are kind of the dawn of the rock era because they were the first, some of the first groups to be playing big ballrooms with big amps. Same things going on in England in a few instances. Um, and, and like I said, you know, in New York with the Velvet Underground and Austin, the 13th floor elevators in Texas are doing this. And it's massively appealing to people. And, and Wayne Kramer says, you know, we had seen this trend coming of suburban kids coming out to the Grande Ballroom on weekends and putting on their beads. And if and we thought, if we want the hippies to like our band, we'll get John Sinclair to like our band because he's the king of the hippies. And that brings in the Svengali of the tale, John Sinclair. Yeah, what a character this guy is. I know. I know. It's like all these bands have this mastermind. You know, the, the 13th Floor Elevators had Tommy Hall. The Velvet Underground had Andy Warhol. MC5 has John Sinclair, and in every one of those instances, it was a double-edged sword, to say the least. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, it's uh, and it's every one of those people that you mentioned is brilliant and totally full of shit. And the the fact that they do both at the same time is is, I think. Well, A, it's really rock and roll, but it's also really emblematic of that particular moment in rock and roll. Yeah, and and that moment in the culture. And that, and coincidentally, that's the moment when LSD really seeps out of the culture. Now, it's not as massively popular as it would be in the 80s. I, I, that blew my mind when I realized my own youth was much more acid-drenched than, than the legendary 60s. But it was new... <laughs> And it was really making an impact on people, plus widespread smoking and marijuana, which was pretty unique for white kids or novel for white kids at this time. So people are dealing with, you know, the Vietnam War, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the civil rights movement. And they're doing it in this context where their brains are cooked on drugs and they're teenagers, you know, most of them. So a lot of bad bad judgment is made and a lot of freedom and things are explored. So it's, you know, I wouldn't want to take it away, but you can't take, have the good without the bad. And as soon as they form this alliance, you know, with John Sinclair, they merge the band 
with his trans love energies commune, which, you know, has a local newspaper and an artist workshop and a committee to end the war and their financial and living circumstances are completely entangled with this commune. And that's going to cause a lot of trouble down the road. But let's hear a little bit of MC5. This is Sonic Reducer number 62, recorded live for their classic album, uh, Kick Out the Jams, also known as Rama Lama Fa Fa Fa. Sonic producer number 62, a.k.a. Rama Lama Fa Fa Fa, recorded live for the Kick Out the Jams album on Electra. And yeah, the as soon as they get together, they're all living together. They're playing the Grande Ballroom. They're able to rehearse in the Grande Ballroom. And they add this free jazz element to their music. And a lot of people slagged them off at the time because they talked a lot about Coltrane. They talked a lot about Ornette Coleman. They talked a lot about Sun Ra. And people kind of scoffed at, at their credentials or that the, 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 they said they didn't hear this in the music, but I call bullshit on that. They, they got the essence of that jazz stuff, which was the freedom and the rage and the energy. And just like Jimi Hendrix was also an Ornette Coleman acolyte. Um, that's one of those things like, you know, free jazz gets written off as this, this movement that didn't make it. Um, and I call bullshit on that. This, these, these rock bands of the, of 67 absolutely took the torch, just like Bob Dylan took the torch from Allen Ginsberg and the beat poets, that free jazz spirit was channeled into the music. And I think pretty brilliantly, I mean, they cover a Sun Ra song here and of course it's sloppy and, and it's not technically jazz, but that's not the point of free jazz at all, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, Free jazz is played by like genius jazz guys, and so that that's what comes out. And if you're playing rock and roll in a free way, it comes out different and a lot more rocking. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. The, and, and and the 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 framework is different. You know, they're hanging like I still feel like the the MC5 the the roots of their thing is in 50s rock and roll, and they want to take it further with. Uh, Let's be louder. Let's be crazier. Let's be weirder. But like we're we're still rocking, and like we're not going to stop rocking. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing to me that like when you look at this stuff in context, and especially when you read articles from the period, and you talk to people who are at these shows, you'll talk to people who were big Dead fans who also loved the MC5 or loved the Velvet Underground when they came to town or loved the 13th Floor Elevators when they came to town. They, These lines were drawn later. At the time, it was just rock and roll, and it was loud, and it was crazy, and nobody knew quite where it was going. And, and so the MC5 are incorporating their own set of influences. And yeah, absolutely, Chuck Berry and Sunrise are their two lodestars. And and the, but the thing that separates them and the Velvet Underground to me from those other bands is they never let the tempos drop. They always just power through, whether it's Mo Tucker just slamming, you know, on that snare on the four, 
or the MC5's killer rhythm section, they never do the Space Jam thing where they where they take their foot off the pedal and hit the cymbals and you know space out. They you know just keep pummeling all the way through, and it just gives the the music a real power that you can see where it influenced punk so directly. But they're also a massive influence on hard rock and heavy metal. I mean, this is the Midwest. This is where Alice Cooper got big, or Ted Nugent got big. Grand Funk. Grand Funk Railroad got big. And the MC5 are absolutely the kings who built the throne that all those other bands um, capitalized on. And they're playing big gigs. Like, they, they have a big love-in on Bell Island in April 1967. And, you know, as Wayne Kramer says, the summer of love didn't make a stop in Detroit. The headline in the newspaper <laughs> said, love-in turns to hate. <laughs> You know, and it's the classic stuff. It smacks of the 2020s to me, you know, people having a, a fun show and then here come the bikers. Then here come the cops to have a police riot. And, you know, then in July, there's the big race riots in Detroit that, you know, burn the whole city down. And Sinclair and Translove Energies and the MC5 managed to insert themselves right in the middle of that political dynamic and bring down a ton of heat on themselves from the police. Yeah, I was kind of fascinated by that. Like that sort of sequence of events of the love-in, which turns into a police riot, and then the actual riot, which is like a totally separate socioeconomic thing that's going on in a lot of ways, but is also like in some ways part of the same thing. Like the cops want to control what's happening and the people don't want to be controlled. And then the the people, you know, the black folks who riot and and actually have that full-on four-day riot, they're in much they have much more to complain about, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But uh but then for a while I thought it was interesting that like you have the love in riot, and then when this really intense riot happens, uh they Sinclair just flies literally flies a flag and says burn baby burn and and says we're aligning ourselves with this and no matter how crazy that is it's brave yeah absolutely and if you read about the history of race relations in Detroit and this country in the 40s there were some really really ugly race riots that were started by white workers on the floors of the factories because they did not want to work with black workers and the riots were essentially more like pogroms where white Detroiters and the cops are just massacring black people in the 60s it was more like the black people against the cops and the white citizens either stayed out or in the case of this vanguard um, the MC5 and John Sinclair and the hippies, they were showing their support for the black community. And now in 2020, you had situations where many of the Black Lives Matter protests were more white people than black people, which is fitting since we're a majority white country. But so th there is a little hint of progress, even though it does feel like we keep playing the same terrible movie over and over again. So hopefully, uh, you know, someday... Maybe the cops will get their feet off people's throats. I don't know. But but the MC5 got themselves in a position where the Detroit police and the National Guard and the FBI are harassing them, you know, pointing tanks at their headquarters, pounding on the doors, calling them out by name. Fire, somebody firebombed their van. And we, what we know of COINTELPRO now, 
you know, there were a lot of bad actors and a lot of them were wearing badges and a lot of them were undercover. And so they, they lit out for Ann Arbor, which is a college town, I think a little bit north of Detroit, where University of Michigan is, got a big mansion, the whole commune moved in, and that set them up for the summer of 68. That's when they really perfected their sound, got the free jazz influences in there. That's where they met the Stooges. And that's when they really started exploding. It wasn't just the Grande Ballroom anymore. Pretty soon they're playing big venues all over the state and drawing mad crowds of kids. And of course, picking up more police heat, state troopers this time, you know, and they're kick out the jams mother flecker slogan is just absolutely like the match on the kindling that sets the cops off every time but let's hear a word from our sponsors and when we come back we'll talk about their big deal signing with Electra records and what happened after that and i teased their signing to the record label but i should mention that they played the democratic national convention in august of 68 i think before they signed with Electra. And that was supposed to be sort of a proto-Woodstock. Woodstock hadn't happened yet, but it was supposed to be this big gathering of the tribes for young people to protest against the war. And Robert F. Kennedy had just been killed after the California primary. And, you know, Hubert Humphrey is about to win the nomination. And Richard Daly, the corrupt scumbag mayor of Detroit, of Chicago, wants nothing to do with this. And all these bands are supposed to play for this mass of kids who's gathering, and the MC5 are the only ones dumb enough to actually show up and play. And the beauty of this movie is they've got the FBI surveillance footage from the show, which is novel to me. I've never seen another documentary where a key concert in the band's history was documented by the FBI. That it's just absolutely outstanding. It's like what this says US government, you know, surveillance, surveillance footage. And you're just like, yes. Yes. Like, and it just, you know, and then they, at one point, they flopped down the FBI's file, you know? Uh, and it's fat. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's just like people can say that they're, you know, that a bunch of this stuff is put on. And of course, there's an element of put on to it. But that was part of the mojo. Yeah. But getting there to that place. And actually setting up and playing took a lot of balls. It absolutely did. And it also tells you this was culturally relevant. This was dangerous. They were mixing a new musical medium with the power of these massive amplifiers that, that was new. This was new stuff with this political un, uh, revolt and the psychedelic revolution. And it was literally too much. And it attracted so much heat. It attracted a lot of passionate fans, but it also attracted a lot of heat and a lot of bring down. But first, Danny Fields, who's a legend, future manager of the Ramones, um, th he's the guy who broke the John Lennon story about where the Beatles are bigger than Jesus in America for, I think, Dateline magazine. Um, the documentary Danny says is just a classic. We should talk about that one sometime. But anyway, Danny Fields is the sort of house hippie at Electra Records. Now, Electra is a folk label that had recently gotten into rock and roll, first with Love and then with The Doors. And they got really big with The Doors. And they hire Danny Fields. He goes to Detroit. He's been hearing about this scene. He falls in love his description of the MC5 is just so beautiful and evocative. 
that was one of my favorite parts too. Just he's just describing what it is that he sees in them, and it's it's so you just kind of have to see it. But like he talks about their Viking power and how butch they are, and he's just obviously still over overtaken by these guys. Yeah, he's like, we were the most effete people in the most effete city, the most effete crowd. He's talking about the Warhol crowd in New York. And I was just uh, poised to be slapped with something that's full of lust and blood and sweat and cum. The Viking power of it. They were just so butch. (laughs) I I was so impressed by it all. And, you know, and they tell him about the little brother band, the Stooges. He sees them, Iggy Pop, um, in a very rough shape. I mean, the Stooges weren't even playing songs at this point. They were just doing total freakouts, and uh he gets jack holzman the head of electric records on the phone and signs both of them up twenty thousand dollars for the mc5 five thousand dollars for the stooges and you know rock and roll history is made right there yeah it's such a and it's so great because there was you know the band's managers are right there and he's like 20 grand from you fuck yeah and five grand for you fuck yeah and it's like you can kind of just see it happening and understand from now, like what a huge deal it is. Cause now these bands are world famous, but like, damn, like that was a, that was a big moment. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely was. And, you know, John Sinclair says, you know, this is, this was the pinnacle of the MC five and, and you know, and it probably was. And they, and they put together a plan. They're going to record a live, their first album live at the Grande ballroom, which is not an approach anybody else ever followed. You know, the, the live album becomes a huge thing in the 70s, but it's always the third or fourth album, and it's playing a catalog of songs that have already been recorded in a studio. The MC5 just cut to the straight and cut a live set of all new songs. And for my dollar, I don't think there was any better way to do it. It's just a perfect album. And immediately, controversy ensues. Um, not only do they have the introduction with kick out the jams motherfuckers and i think they edited i know i've heard versions where they say kick out the jams brothers and sisters rather than motherfuckers so i assume that most of the versions that were sold in 68 were the brothers and sisters version but john sinclair writes these liner notes after a gig on friday the 13th december that year at the tea party in boston with the velvet underground i would cut off my left arm to have seen that show my god the you know the velvet underground on their home base in the tea party and the MC5, you know, I, 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 I don't want to know about it if it wasn't a great show. But he writes these crazy liner notes, as Danny Fields describes them, you know, this beautiful, innocent vision of this beautiful revolution. But it's got phrases in it like uh, fucking in the streets, drugs, uh, rock and roll, fucking in the streets. And Hudson's department store doesn't want any part of it. And did you notice the the beginning of the movie? has uh, the construction of Hudson's, has footage of the newsreel where they show the Hudson's department store being unveiled with a giant American flag on it. Yeah, and, yeah. And the end of the movie is the destruction of the Hudson's department store in the 90s. It shuts down in the 80s. But Hudson's won't carry it. Um, and the MC5 puts out an ad in the local underground paper saying, fuck Hudson's, and has the Electra logo on it and that kills everything like they um as dennis thompson said we're like well they, they're not going to sell our records so fuck them then hudson says well we're not going to carry any electra records 
And Dennis Thompson says, oh, we put our dicks in a ringer on that one. And, you know, they did. It was absolutely one of the worst management moves in rock and roll history. Just an egregious own goal to do that. Um, And, you know, it it leads to them being dropped by Elektra. But this is the point in the movie where there's some pretty big events that they don't talk about. They do talk about how Rolling Stone put them on the cover. And Rolling Stone had a pretty small circulation at this point. It's very early in Rolling Stone, but it also had an incredible influence on the rock scene. This is the Rolling Stone that's just about to convince Eric Clapton to quit Cream and try to emulate the band. They have this massive influence, and they do this cover story, and its I can't remember who wrote it, but it's very different than the other Rolling Stone stuff. I think it was written by somebody in Michigan, and this is long before Cream magazine comes along. And really build them up. And a lot of people were like, who is this? Because it's before the album is released. They haven't toured the West Coast. They haven't toured the East Coast. They're strictly a Midwest phenomenon. People heard about them. They knew that they had played Chicago. You know, bands have been talking about them. But most people are like, why are these people on the cover of Rolling Stone? And then the article is full of sort of hippie falderall and all these grandiose claims. And just a couple weeks later, when the album drops, Yan Winter and Ed Ward the late great Ed Ward, my departed friend, assigned Lester Bangs to review it. And Lester has the knives out for these guys. Yeah, I can't believe how wrong he gets it in his uh, review. And I've read it several times over the years, and every time I'm like, motherfucker, like, what were you thinking? You know, he's he's clearly a brilliant guy, but he couldn't have missed it more. Yeah, it's it's absolutely egregious and and at the same time very well written and he does tag them for some of the you know licks that they swipe from other things it's a very convincing review and in conjunction with some other things that happened at the film and on the west coast that we'll talk about after this song it it really pulled the rug out from under him but let's go ahead and hear our next song this is shaken street this is an unreleased acoustic version that came out on the babe in arms roar cassette in the 80s this is shaken street And that was Shaken Street, the acoustic version that came out on the Babies in Arms CD or cassette tape originally from Roar in the 80s. And that's going to be one of the main songs on the second album back in the USA on Atlantic. But we'll get to that. And the other thing they don't talk about is this Battle of the Fillmore that they that happened when they went uh, to the East Coast and played the Fillmore. And there was this group called, ironically, the Motherfuckers in New York City. They were kind of analogous to the Diggers in San Francisco. They were you know, anarchist, communal revolutionaries in New York City. And they had been fighting with Bill Graham of the Fillmore, wanting free shows, wanting free tickets. There was this sort of the downside of having this collective, we're young, we're going to take over the world. It's a youth revolution was there were people who believed it and expected everybody else to share all their stuff. And the MC5 ended up in the situation where they played one show and then 
a few days later, they played a, a free show that was promoted on the radio, and there were some free tickets that were supposed to go to the community and didn't, or not enough of them did. Or, you know, there's some serious ugliness. Bill Graham gets hit, hit in the face with a chain, and the MC5 flees to their limo after the show, and the crowd really turned on him. And that, between the Rolling Stone whipsaw and this incident on the East Coast, and then what's going to come later with John Sinclair, all the support they had from being the most revolutionary band turns into um, they're just totally turned on by this fan base. And, you know, it's it's uh, one of the big tragedies in rock and roll. And one thing that's often left out is that album was number 29 with a bullet when Elektra dropped them. It was selling. It, this wasn't some punk rock thing that was too far ahead of their time. They were absolutely had seized the zeitgeist. And they sold 100,000 copies of that thing before they got dropped. Um, so, you know, had they not mismanaged that relationship with Electra so badly, that probably would have been at least a gold album. And you're talking about rock stars, which is a whole different situation than what they found themselves in. Yeah. Yeah. And there, like you said, I think there was a lot of different things happening against oh, yeah. them. And, and, and like you said, it, and, you know, I, I'm a little curious about, like, how something that happens in New York, you know, uh, does or doesn't damage their reputation, like, across the country in 1968. You know, like, the, it's not like somebody put that on Facebook. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're, not, you're not hearing in San Francisco that the MC5 are sellouts because they got in a limousine in New Except York. Except they were reading about it in Rolling Stone. And... You know, and there were other underground papers that were picking this story up. So there was a grapevine. It was slower and it was analog, but between FM freeform radio and these underground newspapers and underground comics and magazines like Rolling Stone, there was a grapevine and word got out and, and hurt them pretty seriously. And then there's another pivotal gig that John Sinclair talks about. And this was a rock and roll revival at the state fairgrounds in Michigan. And it was headlined by the MC five Chuck Berry and Sun Ra. And that is kind of the pinnacle. Um, and, you know, Michael Davis talks about how important that gig was. Now he had a whole vision that they had to save the universe. Um, and he ends up falling off the stage and knocking all his amps over. Fred Smith comes out in his, supersonic costume uh sonic smith costume sorry and which looks frankly ridiculous i mean <laughs> it really does it really doesn't look cool no and i mean it's a cool idea or whatever but it was this is where they lost their audience or disconnected with their audience and sinclair since that and you know disassociated himself from them although they were about to fire him because when they got into the financing of the communes and the political party, oh, we haven't even mentioned the White Panther Party that he and John, Rob Tyner conceived of. And again, you know, as Sinclair says, this is the furthest thing from a real political party. This is a bunch of guys who are high on acid and stoned out of their minds and drink a beer and laughing around a table. They were kind of media pranksters, but Sinclair's also trying to do actual revolutionary politics. And that was just a whole lot to have on your plate. Especially sure. if you're high out of your mind. <laughs> yeah. And as, as Michael Davis says, it put us in the position of being role models, you know. Yeah. 
with some kind of banner that we had to support. And I can understand how that's a lot when you're yeah. trying to be in a rock band. Being in a rock band that's really trying to get over is is fraught with traps no matter what, you know? And so yep. to add this stuff on top of it is is a lot. Yeah, and it, it was, you know, too much for anybody. And, um, you know, they're dropped by Electra. They fire John Sinclair. They hook up with John Landau, who's a critic for Rolling Stone. And another one of these guys, genius guy, smarter than me, blah, blah, blah. But if you ever read his review of, like, Jimi Hendrix's early albums where he says things like, I wish he'd just shut up and play the blues, you just want to read his And Landau was right about some things, but... He he gets him signed to Atlantic. Danny Fields calls him and says, Electra's dropping the band. John Landau calls Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records, says, Would you like to sign him? Absolutely. You know, this is a hot band. They're just they're moving units. And um they go into the studio and cut the Born in the USA album, and it's a dramatic shift. And Landau's clearly defensive when he's talking about it. Um I mean, in a lot of ways, that album is a landmark. It's this sort of prophesizes power pop and new wave and punk. It's all very short songs. There's almost no bass register on the record. It's clean and neat, still aggressive and fast, has some great songs on it. Um, But if you're wanting Kick Out the Jams 2, it was the furthest thing. There's none of that free jazz craziness. There's none of that raging noise. And it was a big, big flop. It was a flop. And it it's unfortunate because it, it the record fucking rips. Like, it doesn't sound like Kick Out the Jams, but it it totally smokes. And there's so many incredible songs on it. Yeah. Yeah, Shaken Street, American Ruse. Uh, God, American Ruse is as good. Like, if you want to talk like a political song, you know, they're clear of Sinclair at this point. They're making this whole other record, but that that song is is you know a serious critique. Yeah, it's it's one that's I'm still catching up with. I mean, when I first heard it in my twenties. I sort of wrote it off as hippie nonsense, but <laughs> the longer I live in this country, the more I'm like. Okay, I think they were right on that one. And then there's the human being lawnmower. I mean, just some some heavy heavy duty stuff. But it's it's framed with uh, Chuck Berry's back in the USA and Will Richards' Tutti Fruity, and it was intended, you know, to plant this flag of it's sort of a reactionary album. I mean, they they were laying out the sort of punk agenda a full decade. It's like let's get rid of the blues jams, let's get rid of the jazz jams, let's get rid of the feedback, let's clean it up tighten it up, make it more powerful and go for the throat. But they sacrifice that bass punch. And also not coincidentally, Michael Davis essentially couldn't play. He wasn't a studio bassist. He great live bassist, but couldn't repeat himself. And so Wayne Kramer ends up doing all the bass parts. And when you're recording and building a, a, a record, like that piece by piece, it's never quite going to have the same power of a live band in a room playing at the same time. For sure. And that's the blessing and the curse of them coming out of the gate with kick out the jams. You know, it's so fearsome and it's such a statement. There's no, there's no way to follow it up with something like it that is going to 
move it forward. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to think how they could have done it differently. And like John Landau says, he's like, I was working for the MC five. They were growing. They were young men who were developing rapidly. This was their vision. This is where they were at that moment. And I'm sure a lot of it was a reaction because of the experience they'd had with John Sinclair and, and, and Electra records and just wanting to break with all that stuff. But nonetheless, um, it, it was not a successful record. And let's go ahead and hear our last song snippet. This is from their third record, High Time. This is Skunk, Sonically Speaking. And that was Skunk, sonically speaking, from the MC5's final album, High Time. And this is where the English part of the story comes in. And I get this invitation from Mick Farrell, who uh, was in a bunch of bands and a big zine writer and music journalist in England. And he invites them to the Fun Festival, P-H-U-N. Um, and they get over there, they fly to England, and discovered there's no money <laughs> it's another one of these free festivals and the hippies running the thing of no business sense they go ahead and play uh, i've read reviews about it a legendary show and managed to get atlantic records to to cut them a second advance which is pretty rare um and they stay over in england to start working on the album while they're there and then hook up with this guy Ronan O'Reilly who in the 60s had ran Radio Caroline for um which is for himself which is a pirate radio station that was a boat off the shore of the of England that was a huge part of swinging London and why you know so many bands like the Who and Pink Floyd and the Kinks were able to have hits with the BBC being so constipated and controlled but that had all been shut down several years earlier so Riley's kind of this free-floating entrepreneur who takes him in and multiple members of the band say he almost saved the mc5 but there was just no saving him by that point point. and then there's this classic wembley arena gig where they are playing to wembley which is this massive stadium and sixty thousand people are there and they're all teddy boys <laughs> the most reactionary you know these are the rockers that were fighting with the mods six years earlier and the mc5 decides to introduce a new phase of the mc5 and are basically precursors of glam rock here sonic's in his sonic smith costume wayne kramer is an incredibly cool looking he's painted himself gold solid gold i don't know how he did it i'm sure he poisoned himself doing it and rob tyner has blown his fro out into a very glam rock monstrosity with glitter all in it and they end up getting pelted off the stage by beer cans you know by these teddy boys who don't want any part of glam. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. I thought that was so funny. And it is yeah. funny. It, it sort of does speak to, they keep being put in these rock and roll revival type of situations where, where they're like, there were definitely people who saw them as the, you know, a pure form of rock and roll versus your Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band type thing that was really the ascendant thing. Yeah. And and yet they were also this new thing. They're 
precursors of glam and punk and metal. Um, yeah. And and people didn't know, you know, what the fuck. And, and it, it, it ate them up. And meanwhile, several of them have developed heroin habits. And Michael Davis has become a pretty serious drunk. And, you know, they're going back and forth between Europe and, and Detroit. Basically, they've lost their audience in Detroit because of all these political situations with John Sinclair. I mean, this is a point when John Lennon's writing songs about John Sinclair. And there's a big benefit for John Sinclair with all these bands playing. MC5 isn't invited to play. And, you know, so they lose this Midwest heartland rock and roll crowd which was their birthright that they had built more than any other band and they're going over to europe where they've got where they're still a draw and and have a reputation but you know between michael davis essentially being awol even though he's still in the band and dennis thompson and wayne kramer and others having heroin habits i'm pretty sure sonic had a heroin habit too it just falls apart eventually rob tyner refuses they fire michael davis in europe get an English bass player, then Rob Tyner quits. Then they actually try to do a tour with four people as the MC5. Um, Dennis Thompson quit too. So it's like, as the bassist said, it was the MC2 plus me plus a drummer, <laughs> you know, and uh, just, you know, and, 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 and disgrace. They don't know the songs. There's in the wrong key, everything. And so they crawl back to Detroit. They do one last gig at the Grandi Ballroom New Year's Eve, I think, 72. Wayne Kramer walks out in the middle of it, and that's it for the MC5. I mean, um, and then, you know, two of them are going to end up in prison later on. Two of them die uh, quite young in their 40s in the 1990s. And um, they do all get to see the MC5 be celebrated as this precursor of punk and see many, many bands salute them and, and honor their legacy. But when you're in prison and penniless, it <laughs> kind of takes the shine off some of that stuff. Indeed. Indeed. And the, the story, you know, uh, and Wayne tells most of it of that last show. It's, it's, it's sad. And there's a lot of, of real pain and real regret that you see. And that's one of the things that I want to, point out about this film is that everything we've been talking about except when we bring in some outside information for context is is told to you in this movie by somebody who was absolutely there yep the only people you hear speak in this movie were fucking there it's the members of the band it's danny fields it's two of the wives which i thought was really important yep and unusual and great because they were there and they were living it and they had to go through all this same shit. Yeah. And, and, and get the wrong end of the stick. Cause this was a very, very sexist scene. I mean, this is free love wife swapping the whole bit. And in a very sort of, um, you know, woman, bring me a, a cheeseburger kind of era. I mean, there was, this is right before the feminist revolution. And, and in fact, it's the piggery of these hippies that pretty much triggers the feminist revolution. You have all these dudes talking about freedom and equality, and then saying, bitch, get me a beer, you know, and, and it's, it, you know, it just didn't work. So these women definitely paid their dues and contributed. They sewed the costumes for the band. They lived with the band in these communal settings. And, you know, it was, it was, it was heavy. Heavy is just the word for it. I want to, I want to wrap with um, 
this quote from Dennis Thompson that he says at the beginning of the movie. He says, I have dreams about my band five out of seven days a week. Sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat. Sometimes I wake up crying. Sometimes I wake up crazy and saying, I feel like we failed. The MC5 should still be around right now. We need an MC5 right this minute, right now, playing in that city right there. And he points in Detroit. And this was in 2002 or so. This is in the Bush era, the depths of the war on terror. And he was so right. And history would have been so different if they had somehow managed to thread the needle. But I don't think it was possible. I just, there was too much arrayed against them and they were too close to the fire. They were a revolutionary band and there's no way to be that without having a counter revolution. And they were just a bunch of kids in a rock band. They didn't have millions of dollars backing them. You know, they, they were crushed and, and played themselves too with their drug habits and internal bickering and everything else. And, and, you know, but like, like the lady said, the highs were high. And the lows were low, but the highs were what's important. Absolutely. And uh, as far as we usually do a recommended listening set, but with MC5, it's like all three of the original albums are classics. I recommend the Babes in Arms set. Um, the best of the MC5 uh, has a couple of, of songs that weren't under, weren't released. Thunder Express is one of them. And uh, yeah, the discography, I think, holds up. Although... When I was a young punk rocker and I first got kicked out the jams, I, I was really disappointed because I thought it was too 70s. And then when I was a young grunger and finally got my hands on Born in the USA, I was disappointed because I wanted more kick out the jams. And this was like <laughs> the least grungy record ever made. Um, and High Time is one that honestly, preparing for this episode, I've appreciated that album more now than ever. It's It's got some brilliant stuff. Sister Anne and Sonically Speaking, Fred Smith was working with some ideas that I don't think anybody's followed up on in rock and roll. And, and there's definitely some some really interesting stuff going on in that record. And and it's also just full of great songs. And, it's a yeah. phenomenal record with great songs and great performances. Miss X is a top five rock and roll ballad for me all time. Yep. Uh, Right. And the vocal performance on it is completely out of hand. And it gets me just pumped. Like, there's no slow song like that that makes me, that just shoots adrenaline through my body like that song. Yeah, it is, it is great stuff and just a great band and a great movie. And there was a lawsuit that Wayne Kramer, who cooperated all the way through the filming of the movie, hit him with a lawsuit and... He ultimately lost the lawsuit, but by that time, they had spent the money that they were going to license the music with on fighting the court case. And there's been a couple of GoFundMe attempts, or at least one GoFundMe attempt several years ago that didn't go anywhere. Um, and so hopefully, eventually this movie will come out because the DVD is supposed to be just chock full of great footage that was left out of the movie all the live performances in full, um, you know, director talking, just tons of great stuff. There's Dennis Thompson supposedly trashes the Stooges in there. And that's been on YouTube <laughs> a couple of times, but I've never seen it. And so uh, keep looking. If somebody knows what that is, send me a link. Um, any final thoughts, Justin? Well, just real quick, I want to say, I think it's important from a recommended li listening standpoint, there's a, uh, 
a number of really hot bootlegs out there. And uh, on Spotify, you can find this one that's called Are You Ready to Testify? And it includes what I think is the most important bootleg, which was Sturgis Armory, 1968, I believe. Uh, and it's smoking. And you get to hear them play Black to Calm, uh, which they you know, prominently talk about in the film. Yeah. And, uh, and there's uh, another bootleg, 6970, I think it's called, that has them doing Shaking All Over. And I want to say Born Under a Bad Sign. So it's, it's um, yeah, tons of great stuff at the MC5. So, Justin, it's been a treat. And looking forward to having you back next time to talk about ZZ Top. Oh, ZZ Top. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to continue We Love Rock Docs with a look at ZZ Top, that little old band from Texas. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. <laughs>